Well, let's open our Bibles together this morning to the book of Psalms. Before I get started, I just want to say Happy Father's Day to everyone who is here. And uh, this, I know this holiday uh, means a lot to, to many of us, and it also has mixed emotions for many of us. Uh, I'm blessed to have my father on this earth, and um, he was a man who raised me to know God and to love God, and he modeled that for me. He was far from a perfect man, which I am as well, but he was a man who loved the Lord and who raised me uh, to love God's word, to live God's word, and to be real. Um, my dad is a man, you could say a lot of things about my dad, uh, a lot of good things, a lot of funny things. My dad is a funny man, but one thing you cannot say about my dad is that he's not real. He's real, and what you see is what you get, and I appreciate that about him. The greatest honor of my life has been to be a father to four amazing children and now a new daughter. So uh, since my son got married, and I'm just honored to be uh, called a father, and it means more to me than I could really even explain. As you're turning to the book of Psalms this morning, the word Psalms comes from the Greek word psalmos, which is interesting to me. It means a striking of the chords of a musical instrument. Or a pious song. The Hebrew word tehillim means glory or praise. So the Psalms is a collection of worship songs that were sung to God by the people of Israel with musical accompaniment. So what we did this morning is biblical. Uh, it honors God and is actually commanded in Scripture that we sing psalms accompanied with instruments. God created music, and it's an amazing thing. And the Hebrews called it the book of praises or simply praises. Open your Bibles to praises. And that title reflects the main purpose of the book, which is to assist believers in the proper worship of God. God commands us that we worship Him and Him alone in the first commandment. The second commandment tells us how we should worship God. There are prohibitions. We're not allowed to carve images of our God and worship them. We're not allowed to worship God in any way that we want to. We're commanded to worship Him in specific ways in Scripture. So let's look at the authors of the Psalms. Psalms is one of the rare books in the Bible that was written by several authors. And the book of Psalms was written from many different perspectives, many diverse uh, experiences by different people, different types of people across a period of, of around a thousand years. So... I want to look at the authors of the book of Psalms. The first one is King David. And the second, David was the second king of Israel. And in 2 Samuel 23, verse 1, he is called the sweet psalmist of Israel. That was, that was one of 
the ways that David was identified his title, that, that he was the one that was known for writing psalms of praise to God, which makes me stop and reflect and look at my life. How do people know me? What do people think of when, when my name comes to their mind, when they see an image of me on the internet? What comes into people's minds? I pray that one of the things that people think about is the fact that I love to worship and praise God. God did not give me the best voice. He hasn't given me the best skill for playing instruments, but the amount that he has given me, I've tried to improve it, and I've tried to use it to glorify and praise his name because there's no greater pursuit that we could have than to praise God and use the gifts that we have. Many people write poems. Many people sing psalms. Many people just share the testimony of what God's done in their lives. And I, I love the fact that David is identified as being the sweet psalmist of Israel. He's the chief author of the psalms. He's directly credited with writing 73 of the psalms. In the book of Psalms, there are titles and headings before the psalms. And he's identified in 73 of those, but the New Testament affirms his authorship of two more of the psalms that we did not know of by the titles in the book of Psalms. Psalm 2 is identified by Acts 4.25 as being written by David, and Psalm 95 is identified by Hebrews 4.7 as being written by David. We also have some other authors. Asaph, who was a priest who served as the worship leader in ancient Israel, he wrote 12 of the psalms. David wrote 75 of the psalms. Asaph wrote 12. The sons of Korah wrote 10 psalms. Solomon, David's son, the third king of Israel, is uh, accounted as writing Psalm 72 and 127, so two of the psalms. Moses, the great leader of Israel throughout the Exodus and uh, up to that border of the Promised Land, wrote one psalm. Psalm chapter 90 was actually written by Moses. He-man... Yes, that is actually the name of a man in the Bible. He, man, who was a wise man and a musician, a son of Korah, and the founder of the Korahite Choir, he wrote one psalm, Psalm 88. Ethan uh, wrote one psalm, and the rest, the other 48 psalms, are by anonymous authors. We don't know who wrote them, but they were regarded as Scripture by the Hebrews and have been preserved in the Bible. And they also believe that Ezra, Ezra, who we studied a few weeks ago, was a scribe and priest in Israel. He was thought to be the author of some of the anonymous psalms, and he is also thought to be the one who assembled the uh, later books of the psalms uh, after David's life. So there are five books in psalms. They're separated in Scripture by, by in, in five different books, and at the end of each book is a psalm of doxology, of praise, of just lifting up the name of God. The first psalm was written uh, by Moses, was Psalm 90, and it was written between 1445 and 1405 B.C. And then the final psalm, we believe that uh, Ezra most likely wrote Psalm 126, and it was between the time 500 B.C. and 430 B.C. So we see a period of close to a thousand years 
where the Psalms are being written. Which also reminds me that multiple places in the Psalms, the Bible tells us to sing a new song to God. There should never come a time where Christians stop writing songs and stop praising God. Yes, it's always going to be uh, maligned by some people. We love old Psalms, old songs. We love traditional songs, and they seem to have a little bit more weight in our hearts and sometimes we don't like the style or the sound or the rhythm or the meter of the new songs or the new style but here's what I want you to know every generation should be writing songs of praise to God I would hate for our generation to be the one that dropped the ball on this which I don't think is possible because God's people are always going to write songs of praise to God. Next, let's look at the types of Psalms. Sometimes we can read through the book of Psalms, and if we don't realize the context or the genre of what we're reading, it, it causes questions to come in our minds. So the different types of Psalms, the first one is a wisdom Psalm. These give us practical guidance for godly living and how we should live our lives day to day, how to pursue God's will in our lives. The wisdom psalms are incredibly important to us. If you find yourself struggling to obey God's will in your life, as we all do from time to time, if you find yourself struggling for daily wisdom, you should read the wisdom psalms. Psalm 1 is one of those songs, and it talks to us about avoiding the wicked, the lifestyles of the wicked, being influenced by people that don't love God, and focusing on God's Word. And loving God's word and studying God's word and the effects of that in our lives. The wisdom psalms are important. The next type are lament psalms. Uh, these are very emotionally charged psalms that record the, the emotions of the writer and the author's heart when expressing his, his feelings and his emotions to God. In the church and in Christianity today, we have two different extremes. Some people seem to focus all on emotions and they forget about the truth and the doctrine of God's word. You go to church and it's just this big emotional outburst. They don't care a whole lot about doctrine. They don't care a whole lot about uh, protecting the truth of God's word like the apostle Paul did and like we're commanded to do in the book of Jude. It's just about feelings and whatever makes you feel good. That's what they do, and it's this hyper-emotional experience, and people walk out of the door not understanding God any better, not loving God any better, but they say, what an incredible day at church. And false doctrine many times has been taught. Many times God is worshipped in the wrong way. Remember, this book is given to us. The primary purpose is to assist believers in the proper worship of God. And many times, modern-day worship crosses the line in how God desires to be worshipped. How did Jesus say we should worship God? In spirit and in truth. Truth, you've got to have sound doctrine when you worship God. doesn't matter how beautiful a song is. If it explains God in the wrong way, if it's full of false teaching and false doctrine, it doesn't glorify God. But then there's another extreme. Where we seem to say, oh, you know what? People uh, take 
emotionalism and, and they go too far with it. So we're just not going to be emotional at all. And we can come and sit in a pew in a church and worship God without any emotional outbursts at all. Without any tears for the fact that God loves us, that he saved us, that he's forgiven us. Without a heart of gratitude. We can focus so much on the truth that we don't let it affect us at an emotional level. And I want to remind you that God created emotions. I tend to fall on this side of the spectrum where it's just give me truth and the emotions just don't really matter that much. But they do matter. And people express emotions differently. Some people cry and they get quiet when they get very emotional. Some people are very reflective and they just... They have an emotional worship experience inside of their heart. Some people raise their hands. Some people shout. Some people praise. I've seen people run around. I've seen all sorts of things in the house of God. And I can't accuse those things because people express emotions in different ways. The Bible does say, let all things be done decently and in order. God is not a God of chaos. And we should understand what is said and what is done in the church. I want to be clear about that. But we shouldn't fall in either one of these extremes. We should be people that are very expressive in praising God, worshiping God, in our love for God. If it doesn't choke you up sometimes when you hear Scripture read or sung or preached, we need to examine something. Because I promise you, when we're out in the world and when we're watching movies and when we go to games, we get emotional. And that's okay. It's... It's fine. I've heard preachers preach against cheering at ball games. It's, it's fine to do that. We're made in God's image. We're, we get excited. We get expressive. And there's something different about sports in church. I don't want people coming in church acting like they're at a sports game. There, there should be a sense of reverence. There should be a sense of awe. But we shouldn't be scared to have emotions in the house of God. And the Psalms of Lament are just Psalms where They're crying out to God for deliverance from trouble and from pain. We also see psalms of thanksgiving, where the psalmist is just expressing gratitude to God. And there's a profound awareness of God's blessing in their life. The only excuse we have for not thanking God and expressing thanksgiving to God is if somehow we're just not aware of his blessings in our lives. And if you're not aware of God's blessings in your life, just open your eyes. We have a million and ten million reasons to be thankful and express our gratitude to God. We will never, ever run out of reasons to be grateful to God for the things that he's blessed us with. We have the imprecatory psalms. These are the ones that make us very uncomfortable. Have you ever read a psalm where David is praying for God to break out the teeth of his enemies and to destroy the wicked, to have them dashed upon the rocks? Yes, those are actually psalms, and sometimes we don't know what to do them, but what we see is emotions pouring from the heart of God's man as he's motivated by a fiery zeal for God's glory. 
And he sees people who are wicked, who have rejected God's truth, who are attacking God's people. And he prays for God's judgment to come upon God's adversaries and his adversaries. Now we also see psalms that are full of pleas for God's mercy and God's protection. We also see pilgrim songs where they're Psalms that were sung on the way to festivals and celebrations. Enthronement psalms, which were awe-inspiring psalms describing the majesty, majesty of God's sovereign rule over His creation and the care with which He sustains and controls and directs all that He has made. There are Hallel psalms, which are psalms of praise. Passover psalms, which were sung at the Passover feast. Penitent psalms, psalms of confession of sin, requesting forgiveness for sin. And my favorite psalms, the most important psalms, I believe, which are, which are many and, and represented by a, a vast number of psalms, are the messianic or the royal psalms, which describe the coming Messiah and the rule of Christ over his creation. From Genesis to Revelation, we see a theme of the Deliverer, the Messiah, the Anointed One, who will come and deliver His people. And Psalms give us a, a very good picture of this undisputed, sovereign King of heaven and earth, the Christ who is going to come to the earth. There are very specific prophecies in the book of Psalms. And as we think about these different types of Psalms, I think some people could find this very dry and, and be like, why are you just giving us an outline of the book of Psalms? Well, I chose to give you this this morning because it shows us how we reflect God's image. Who we are as image bearers of God. We are body, soul, and spirit. We possess a physical body, an immaterial mind, and deep emotions. And we should employ all of our being in the praise of of God and in worshiping God. What does the greatest commandment tell us? We should love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. This includes our physical body, our non-physical mind, our emotions, our spirit. Every aspect of who you are should be devoted to praising God. And, and we could examine our minds. What, our, our mind is constantly going. We just can't turn it off. Even when we try to go to sleep, even while we're sleeping, our mind is constantly going. Do you use your mind to worship God? Do you use your mind to stand in awe of Him, to look at His creation? I was driving back from Danville, Virginia, coming through the Hickory area, and you guys probably know the exact spot I'm talking about. There's a spot coming back to Asheville where you come over this hill and you just see the Blue Mountains. It goes from a dark shade of green and just transitions into this very faint light blue that you can just see off in the distance. I've seen it on postcards. And yesterday as I was driving back, I saw that and it just inspired all in me and my mind went to my Creator, he made this. He didn't have to create colors. 
He didn't have to create different shades. He didn't have to create different temperatures. He didn't have to create different tastes and smells. Why did he do all of that? None of that is essential for our survival. He did it because he's a God of beauty, and he loves beauty, and it should inspire worship in our hearts. Many times our minds take us to a place that doesn't reflect a a proper praise and worship of God. Many times our minds are spent thinking negative thoughts, feeling like we don't have anything to be thankful for, feeling like the whole world is against us. And in times like that, we should preach the gospel to ourselves, quote scripture to ourselves, and fulfill the command to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So we see the types of psalms, and there's a lesson in the different types of songs. And as you read through the book of psalms, which we should do in my yearly reading plan, there, I just came through a season where I'm, I'm focusing on the psalms. And I've, I've read them since I was a little boy. I've heard them sung. I've sung them like we did this morning. And it just never ceases to amaze me how beautiful these songs are, how timeless these songs are. Also, if you want to understand the book of Psalms, you you need to understand the different figures of speech. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because this is getting over and crossing over into the boring aspect of teaching the book of Psalms. But it's important to understand. I'm not an English teacher. If you couldn't tell that by this point, then I don't know what to tell you. But I do want you to understand the different things to look for in the book of Psalms. There are similes, metaphors, allegories, metonyms, hyperbole, apostrophe, anthropomorphisms, all these different figures of speech, and and there's more. Some of them I'm not comfortable pronouncing, so I'm just going to leave those out. But these different figures of speech are used in a colorful way to not just say, God is good. No, it paints a glorious picture of how good God is and why he's good and the ways that he's good. There are also different literary styles. In English poetry, we focus on what English poetry is based on, and that is rhythm and meter. That's what English poetry is about, rhythm and meter and, and, and rhyming the words. Hebrew poetry is based on rhythm and parallelism, which states an idea in the first line and then reinforces it with many different literary devices in the second line. So instead of rhyming and meter, we see rhythm and parallelism, and yes, we don't necessarily hear it the same way because we don't, most of us don't read Hebrew and we don't understand that, but even as we study it in English, we can see the beauty in this. There's also many alphabetic acrostics in the book of Psalms where each verse starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet and then moves through and hits each one of the letters. And the main reason this is done is to help with memorization. We've we've learned many acrostics, whether you like them or not. It makes things a whole lot easier to learn. Uh, Probably 10, 15 years ago, I learned an acrostic uh, for words that we say, and the acrostic is think. Before you speak something, you should use the acrostic think. Is it true? 
Is it helpful? Is it important? Is it necessary? Is it kind? That's something that just burns in your memory. And when you're feeling an impulse to say something and you know you probably shouldn't or you know you probably shouldn't post this, you just remember that. The Psalms are full of tools like that to help us memorize the Psalms. My daughters and I are going next week to summer camp all week long in Wise, Virginia. And they sent out a, a list of Bible memory verses, three pages of verses that my daughters can learn and the other campers can learn to earn points for their team. And many of them are from the Psalms. And it just, as a father, it just encouraged my heart to know that my daughters are going to be memorizing these verses. And as I sent three pages to them, they said they were going to memorize them. And one was a little bit more ambitious than the other one. One said she was going to memorize eight. And the other one was like, yeah, I think I can do them all. I, mean, I got this. But we should be memorizing Scripture, and we should appreciate Scripture. It was actually written to be memorized. The easiest thing to memorize is a song. I could ask you to raise your hand how many 60s, 1950s songs, 60s songs, 70s songs, how many country songs we know and we can sing by heart. Some of you are like, ah, I don't like country music. Well, if you do like country music, you probably have four decades of songs that are burned into your memory, and you may not even know you remember it. You'll hear it in Waffle House or walking through Walmart, and you'll sing it word for word. We're created with the ability to memorize, and I would hate to get to heaven and know that I put more focus on memorizing something other than God's word. And that's not something to guilt trip us. It's something to, to create a passion in our hearts to learn God's word, to know God's word, and to share God's word. Next, let's look at the themes. The themes in the book of Psalms, I could preach for a year or longer. I could preach for the rest of my life on the themes in the book of Psalms. The main theme in the book of Psalms is the greatness of God. It comes, oh, it comes up page after page, psalm after psalm, verse after verse. God is great. He's great as our creator, as our redeemer, as our judge. He is our glorious God, our sovereign God. He's a God of wisdom. He's great in his law, in his mercy, in his incarnation, in his passion. He's great as a guide, and he is great in his mystery. The Psalms are really good about being honest. We just talked through the book of Job a few weeks ago. And like Job, who was honest and shared even his sinful thoughts and shared his, his uh, broken thoughts from his broken heart in his time of tragedy, he shared those things with God. The psalmists are like that. They're not afraid to be honest with God and tell God that it seems like he's not fair. To seems like, that it seems like he's silent, that he's not there. And that reminds us of the mystery of God. There are seasons in our lives where it seems like God is silent. Where it seems like God is absent. Where it seems like he's distant or like he just doesn't care about us. And in those times, as you read through the Psalms, where they're just being honest with God and they're saying, God, it, I just don't understand why you're not here. How long are you going to be silent? How long are you going to stay distant from me? 
If you go through seasons of suffering in your life and don't read the Psalms, you're doing yourself a great disservice because the Psalms inspire hope. So that's just one of the themes, the greatness of God. We also see the theme of creation and fall that connects all of Scripture in this book that's found in the center of our Bible. We see the theme of worship, thanksgiving, prayer. Prayer is a theme because it's, re- it's directed toward God. Psalm after psalm after psalm are prayers of faith, prayers of hope, prayers for rescue. We see the theme of peace, of repentance, of restoration, protection, praise. Justice is a big theme in the book of Psalms. History, recounting the things God has done in the past to give us hope in the future. And the future is a huge, huge theme in the book of Psalms. Eschatology, end times, in things, the culmination of all of God's work throughout creation. That's a big theme in the book of Psalms. That I read it this morning in Psalm 46 where God will one day set everything right in creation. He will one day step onto the scene in a visible way and make the things right, bringing justice and bringing peace as the Prince of Peace returns to this earth. Those are just a few of the themes that we see in the book of Psalms. Here's what I really want to focus on, our Christ connection. Psalms is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. That's important. Of the 360 direct Old Testament quotations in the New Testament, 112 are from the Psalms. Psalms contains more messianic prophecies than any other Old Testament book. It reveals the Messiah as the Son of God, the Son of Man. In Psalms 8, in his obedience in Psalms 40, his betrayal, Psalm 41, his crucifixion in Psalm 22, before crucifixion was even invented, we have a description in Psalm 22 of how Christ would die. Psalm 16, showing us the resurrection, his ascension in Psalms 68, 18, and his enthronement in Psalms 110. Jesus quotes the Psalms multiple times. During his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he quoted Psalms 8-2. During the parable about Israel, he quotes Psalms 118. During his teaching in the temple, when they ask him who the Christ is, in Mark chapter 12, verse 36, he quoted Psalm 110, verse 1, and applied it to himself. And during his last Passover night, predicting that the world would hate the disciples as they, as they hated Jesus, in John chapter 15, verse 25, he quoted Psalm 35, 19, and Psalm 69, 4. And on the cross, as Jesus Christ was shedding his blood, dying for the sins of the world, 
He quoted Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then his final utterance from the cross, he quoted Psalm 31, verse 5. Into your hands I commit my spirit. I thought it was interesting that as Jesus was a young boy, 12 years old, in the temple, as he was left in Jerusalem by his parents, they returned after three days to find Jesus sitting in the temple among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. The Bible says all who heard him were amazed and at his understanding and at his answers. So the first time we see Jesus, other than when he's a baby, he's a 12-year-old boy, he's in the temple, and he's speaking. We're not told the words that he spoke, but the first time we see him speaking in Scripture, he's asking questions and giving answers about the Scriptures. And the final words of Christ on the cross before he dies for our sins, spoken to his father in his moment of death, he quotes scripture from the book of Psalms. How important was Psalms to Jesus? We don't know because none of us have prioritized scripture to the extent that Jesus did. We're his disciples, we're his followers. We should think about how we love the words of scripture. And we can't just say we love it if we don't spend time studying and living out the truth of God's Word. I also want you to see the gospel in the book of Psalms. The risen Jesus said to his disciples that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus considered the book of Psalms to be ultimately about him, about the Messiah. The Psalms predict the coming Savior, the coming Messiah, in a very straightforward way, such as in Psalm 2, where the Messiah's rule over all the nations is prophesied. Other times when Jesus takes the words of the Psalms on his own lips and speaks these songs, and undoubtedly sings the songs with his disciples. Other times, psalms pick up promises of God's covenant to his people and the Davidic promise of an eternal reign from 2 Samuel verse seven, chapter 7. And we see Jesus fulfilling these psalms in Psalm chapter 45, verse 6, as he's the son of David the heir of the promises of David, and the one who would sit on the throne of David forever and ever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. I also think it's important to understand that these 150 songs, half of which are written by David, are the heart cries of God's covenant people. They cry to God for forgiveness, for help in times of lament, they cry out with praise, with thanksgiving, to exult in God's law, the longest psalm, Psalms 119, every single verse. Every single verse is about the Word of God and how precious God's Word is to us. 
God's covenant people cry out to Him to express confidence and to recount all the wonderful things that God did for them throughout their history. I want to remind you that the gospel is not just revealed in John 3.16 or in the New Testament. It begins in Genesis 1 as God is creating the heavens and the earth because Jesus is the one speaking the universe into existence. This Messiah that would come and rescue us, die for our sins, rise from the dead. He's the one speaking on the pages of Genesis. The promise of the coming Messiah after the fall into sin in Genesis 3.15 were promising of the coming Messiah who would die for our sins and rise from the dead. It begins in Genesis and the gospel runs all the way throughout Revelation chapter 22. The good news of God is that He is our Creator, that He made us in His image, and that even though we sinned, He promised to send a Redeemer, a Christ, a Messiah. And He called the people to send this Messiah through the children of Abraham. And He made a covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with David, and with Solomon. David was the type of Christ. And it was the descendant of David, Jesus Christ himself, who came and redeemed the world and who is restoring all things as they should be. I've spent a lot of time talking about the Psalms, but I want us just to listen to the beauty of Psalms, and many of these we could quote by heart, but I want to read some of these Psalms to you this morning and just let it wash over your soul as we close our service. Psalm chapter 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But the blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I want you to look at Psalm 51. This is David's song of repentance after his great sin with Bathsheba 
and his great sin against God, and he cries out, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O God, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And Psalm 100. <laughs> Make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. And that's just a small, small sample of the beauty and the hope and the encouragement and the forgiveness and the joy and the peace that we find in the book of Psalms. I want to close with application. First of all, we all need to ask ourselves, what is our relationship with God? We see in the book of Psalms that the psalmists are approaching God as his people. They belong to God. They are in covenant with God. They're loved by God, accepted by God, corrected by God, forgiven by God. But there's another group in the book of Psalms that he speaks of often, and they're called the wicked. In our natural state, we're all born sinners. We were all born a part of the wicked. And we all chose to continue in our wicked ways. And the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die. And after this, the judgment. Every one of us will give an account of himself to God. And if we have not been forgiven by Jesus Christ, if our sins haven't been forgiven, if we're not a part of God's family, and we're a part of the wicked 
The Bible says the wicked will be cast into hell. And that's a very sobering thought because we have friends and family members who do not know God. And I would hate to think that someone would be in here this morning that has not received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and hasn't gone from death to life, from wickedness to being a child of God, to being loved and accepted and forgiven and filled with the Holy Spirit. So what is your personal relationship with God? And are you willing to ask that question to other people in your life? And to call them to be reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. The next application I think we need to think about is, will we worship God properly? According to His word and according to His will. We can't worship God properly if we don't know God's word. He tells us how to worship Him. And we're called to worship Him in this way. Do you live your life in conscience, in conscious daily dependence upon God? Is that how we live our lives? As you read the Psalms, they were very aware of how every single breath came from God. And when we go through the valley of shadow of death, when we go through sickness, when we go through hurt, disappointment, betrayal, we're reminded of that. But many times in good times or just average times, we forget how much we need God. Do we live in conscious, daily dependence upon God? Do you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and emotions? Today is Father's Day. And as we talk about King David, we can't help but notice that David was a great man of God, used in incredible ways by God. He shepherded the hearts of thousands of people. Yet one of his greatest failures was as a father. He neglected his responsibility as a father to shepherd the hearts of his children. And we see one after one as his children dishonor God and disobey God. And do things that bring reproach on the name of God. And as a father, it makes me pause and look at my life because I'm far from perfect. And I, I would hate to know that one thing in my life derailed my testimony, especially with my children. My children know my flaws more than any of you know my flaws, except for my wife. They're very aware of my weaknesses, of how petty I can be at times, how my focus gets off. I could go on and on. But I pray that they know I love Jesus and that I want to live my life honoring Him and glorifying Him. And the biggest fear I have in my life is wasting my life by failing to honor God and honor my family. The good news for all of us this morning, because as many fathers as we have in this room, every one of us is an imperfect father. But the good news for imperfect fathers this morning is that we have a perfect father who never forsakes us. And even if we've messed up as a father, which we all have, there's forgiveness 
by God. And we can start today living for Jesus in a way that will influence our children more than just speaking words ever will. So God is calling us all back to a place of commitment to Him as our Father and walking in His Word, walking in His wisdom, and walking in His truth. And knowing that when we fall short, He's there to forgive us. He's there to pick us up. He never forsakes us. And one day, this Father is going to be free from this body of sin. This mind that is weak, these emotions that are frail. And one day, I'm going to experience what it's like to be like Jesus. And to glorify God with all my mind, all my heart, all my soul, all my strength. And I long for that day. Let's bow our eyes, bow our heads and close our eyes in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the Psalms. Just the few that we read this morning and studying how you chose to reveal yourself to us in the book of Psalms. God, it should inspire our hearts to seek after you. To love you more. And to obey you and honor you. To pray with Christ that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, I pray that you would search us. Try our hearts. In this moment of response to the truth of your word and your Holy Spirit's presence in our Midst this morning, God, I ask that you would search us, try us, see if there's any way, wicked way in us, and cleanse us. Wash us from our sin, from our iniquity. And God, use us to glorify you and to be a testimony for you in this world. And Lord, as we leave this morning, I pray that you would go with us and be real to us in every moment of our lives, and God, may we focus on loving you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together. We're going to close out singing Psalm 23 together this morning. i
Surely mercy, right beside. 